This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Get ready for Vancouver's premier real estate podcast. Your source for buying, selling, and investing in Vancouver's real estate market. With your hosts, two guys with faces for radio, Adam and Matt Scalina. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And we have an excellent episode today. We have managing broker Mike Hofer here. From Century 21 Intown Realty yeah, in Yaletown. Absolutely. And Mike's, Mike's he's an amazing guy. He, it was a really enjoyable interview. Uh, a lot of great stories. Yeah, he's always, uh, he's always entertaining and uh, opinionated and uh, just all around interesting. So it's, it's really, uh, I think people are really going to like this one, especially because we, uh, we tackle assignments and shadow flipping. Shadow flipping. So obviously a hot topic in the media. It's been the talk of the town in Vancouver. Everybody seems to have an opinion on it. And, uh, you know, so does Mike, so does Mike. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but the interesting thing, so, so what, where this kind of started was there was an article in the Globe and Mail on February 6, 2016 titled the real estate technique fueling Vancouver's housing market by Kathy Tomlinson. Yeah. And so this, this came out and since then there's been kind of a barrage of articles, um, talking about, uh, this idea of, uh, of a gray market, of shadow flipping, of the sale of assignments. And just to kind of back up a bit, just to put that in kind of the greater context um, in Vancouver right now, obviously we just had the release of of the new budget. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of positioning going on in terms of provincial politics and an ongoing issue that seems to be at the the forefront of, of uh, you know, the politics is affordability. So it seems like kind of a, an ample time for, for a conversation like this to be had. Exactly. And, and, uh, I think Kathleen Tomlinson has, you know, it's spurred a huge discussion here in, even to the point I saw she was doing an ask me anything on Reddit. 
really? about this article. Yeah. Wow. So I, so there's there's obviously tons of interest. Yeah, and I, I I was scared to even look at the comments section just because I'm sure the realtors are being strung up. But that's right. I, yeah. <laughs> it, it is. We should say it's a bit of a delicate situation for us to to touch on. Uh, we don't want to come across as defensive, right? Um, but I, I think there we can shed light on this and. Uh, for and, sure. And the other thing I was going to say, just to point out, is this is, I think, uh, one of the goals of this podcast, right, is to have a space uh, where we can have a discussion with, like the one we have with Mike today, where, you know, it's it's us sitting in an office uh, downtown and we just sort of talk about, uh, shoot the breeze with Mike about this uh, yeah. this subject for a while. So it's, you know, hey, is everything... Uh, is everybody going to agree with everything? Maybe not, but it's it's an no. interesting discussion nonetheless. And I don't think a, a clear opinion really comes out of it. And I think that's a good point. It is. It's just a conversation about what we're kind of seeing on the ground level, um, you know. And and if you haven't read this article yet, it's yeah, going to be in the show it. notes. Um, essentially, what the article discusses is the sale of assignments and how properties are being traded one or more times before a deal actually closes, before it completes. And the example, the article cites in particular, involves a real estate agent um, being involved in the sale of assignments. Uh, but just to be clear, you know, assignment sales happen with all sorts of buyers, investors, sellers all the time. Yeah. And they have for a very long time. And especially, especially in the pre-sale market with, with condos uh, that sure. haven't been built. But in really hot markets, I think, with houses. Is or really they... soft markets where people are trying to basically sell before they have to complete. Right? Exactly, exactly. Which we touch on today as well. Um, but... The controversy seems to stem around this notion of a gray market where selling assignments can lead to the original seller losing out on potential profits, um, multiple commissions being charged, and, of course, this potential for avoiding taxes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think just before we actually cut to the interview, um, what we do want to just make clear is that I think this is a conversation that needs to be had. I think that anytime there's an issue of consumer protection, um, I mean, we're all for making the consumer uh, in a position where they're, they, they have more protection. And I, I think more a protection, lot, more information. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that comes out in this interview with Mike Hofer. So without further ado, here's our interview with Mike Hofer. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so so Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, born and raised Vancouver, right? Uh, born in the East End, and uh, about fourteen years of age, moved out to Coquitlam, where I'm still am. Uh, first licensed in 1989, uh, sold for seven years before I got into management. So this is now my 27th year as a manager. I've uh, managed in virtually every market in the. Uh, Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, except for Tawasson, and uh, worked for a number of brokerages, managed close to a 1,000 realtors now, or over a 1,000, and uh, been personally responsible for over 20,000 contracts, representing billions of dollars worth of uh, real estate sales. So it sounds like you know a thing or two about the business. Uh, A couple things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we uh, have you here today, Mike, to talk a little bit about shadow flipping, a term that was maybe just recently invented. I'm not sure. Maybe Have, have, you, well, have you heard of shadow flipping before? I've never heard it in that context. Assignment um, has uh, been around for quite a while, and 
came into prominence in the mid-2000s uh, on the issue of shadow flipping, um, where I, in that article it said most of these uh, flips are not advertised or listed. Um, that's because you need permission to list them on MLS. Uh, you need the permission of the original seller. So in lieu of that, uh, they don't get listed on MLS. So for shadow listings, it's a relatively new term. I'm sure, you know, that person also knows where Area 51 is. So why don't we start maybe, so can you, uh, can you give us a kind of a working definition of an assignment? What is an assignment? Well, I think an assignment, you know, the best way to look at it is, is you're selling a piece of paper. Um, you're buying the contract and the person buying that assignment uh, doesn't get to renegotiate that original deal. They have to take that contract as it is with all the risks and everything else implied. And so it's a commodity. It's traded just like anything else. Um, right now, we're focused on assignments because they feel that people are yielding uh, profits that should go to the original homeowners. And while I'm not in total disagreement with that, um, I also find that assignments have helped people get out of situations where bank has pulled financing or market has gone down and they need to get out of a deal and they're assigning at a loss. So it's it's not that assignments are bad. They're kind of inert. It's what people do with them that can be misconstrued, good or bad. So in, in the Globe piece, she outlines a few situations that have got people riled up. What Why, why are people so upset? Well, I think they feel duped. To be quite honest, um, it's a little bit of bait and switch. In the one article, or the, in that article, they specifically referenced uh, the Rappaports, where they sold their property for 5.2, and then somebody turned around and quickly sold it for 6.2 within three months. Well, my question, and the one thing that the article doesn't address, is why didn't the Rappaports use a realtor to help them determine proper value for their property? Why didn't they go to market where everybody competes for those properties? You know, if I'm reading between the lines and what's not said is the Rappaport's on a $5.2 million sale wanted to avoid paying $125,000 in commissions. And by doing so, not realizing the extra profit on the 6.2 and even calculating commissions on the 6.2, you know, walked away from $840,000 to save one hundred and twenty-five. dollars so I find it very ironic that if they would have hired a competent realtor that would have taken it to market, then all likelihood they would have realized the 6.2, and now they're beating up the realtors for not hiring them. Okay, I have another question here. Uh, one is it, people seem to be upset, right, exactly what you're outlining there, that the, the original buyer somehow was duped. Another issue is the tax avoidance. Well, a tax avoidance, you know, the CRA is a um, honor system. They, uh, you know, there is an obligation of the person or the assignee, the person selling, or sorry, the assignor, the person selling the assignment contract has an obligation to report those uh, proceeds extra or the lift as we're calling it uh, to CRA and under the capital gains uh, provision, 50% of that profit should be taxed as income. So I would suggest right now that uh, everything is subject to taxing, but again, the Canadian system is an honor yeah. system if you don't report it unless they find out otherwise. And, and how do you feel about the, because they, they reference in the article property transfer tax that, you know, that's only being paid once and the property's switching hands, you know, two, three times potentially. Well, a property transfer tax is a whole other issue. There's a lot of people that feel it should be abolished and that it's very punitive. Um, so... You know, 
when you look at an assignment, for example, a piece of property is not being transferred. So therefore, property transfer tax should not be applicable. You're buying a contract. You know, I've got another one for you. If a property, if a limited company exists purely for the sake of holding properties, if you affect a share sale in that property, you avoid property transfer tax as well, provided you keep that incorporation intact. Right. So, you know, there's a million ways to skin the cat here. Yeah, so property transfer tax in this situation is when the name transfers on title is when that tax is paid? Yeah, when the property actually transfers, which is a result of the contract that has been assigned. See, yeah, this is the thing about the article, is that it specifically speaks about the avoidance of property transfer tax, but in the case, yeah, you're only buying the contract. The contract's switching hands, so the transfer of is actually not taking place. It only takes place once at the end. That's right. And they were referring to it as a cost savings? Yeah, it was that what people were avoiding. Right. You know, it was like, oh, the flippers are avoiding paying taxes. But I think the main tax, they might be paying cap gains on on their on what they make in the in the transfer, but or sorry, in the sale. But it's it's uh, the property transfer tax that, that they're avoiding. I don't think, and I, I'm going to put a different spin on that. If the property transfer tax was paid, and they went back to market, and they calculated the property tax as an expense, and then put their profit on top of it. It would only make the affordability issue worse because they'd be adding that to their to their expenses and or their expenses and still claiming the same amount of profit. Mm-hmm. All they'd be doing is driving the price point up higher. Right. You know, soft costs. People that buy and flip their house or sell their houses all the time. You know, the amount of soft costs that they pay in terms of, uh, you know, lawyers' fees and property tax, transfer taxes and all these other things and stuff like that. You know, it adds up pretty quickly, too. So that actually makes me think of the title of the Globe and Mail expose, which was that flippers and realtors are fueling the market. And we're talking about costs associated. How, How do you what's your read on that? Well, you know, the real estate market's like an engine. The engine isn't broken. You know, you want to slow down the market, you put less fuel in it. And the fuel is money. So bringing in extra layers of tax and all these other things, there's a couple of other good articles that were written that sort of help put it in perspective. I mean, yes, it sucks that we live in the best place in the world, that we have everybody wants to come here and live, and it's terrible that we don't have any more land. You know, but it's supply and demand. So, well, the first thing is, is let's go back to that article. They said on the west side that they found 250 pop properties that had been assigned, and on 11% of those properties that a realtor was involved in one side of it. So that's 27 and a half properties out of 250. So I'm not sure how much 11% can fuel. Are speculators fueling it? I would suggest that the market's allowing them to profit from it. You know, investment is simply risk versus reward. Quite often when those people are buying those properties or before they even intend to assign them, or if they intend to assign them in the in the first place, they are legally responsible for having that initial deal complete. Right. So, you know, I remember back to the financial crisis, how at the beginning of the year, all the so-called experts were predicting double-digit increases again. And then by the end of the year saying, oh, no, 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 you know, so the market can turn. Uh, I don't think um, that it will that quickly. There's too many things driving it. 
But at the end of the day, it's the money coming in and the desire of people to want here, and it's simple profiteering. I don't care if it's the gold rush or World War II or what. But if there's an opportunity to make money, these people are going to come out and they're going to figure out a way to do it. You know, there's immigration consultants that uh, will approach realtors for 50% referrals on commissions if they feed them overseas clients that are coming in and they want these clients to buy them and they instruct them and they listen to them and then they buy them. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going, you have all this money and all of a sudden you go into a different market or you go into a store and everything's cheap, you're going to keep buying stuff even if you don't want it or need it. It's kind of like the Costco phenomenon, right? Who gets out of Costco spending $20? So, <laughs> familiar with that phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think the, the article is full of a lot of half-truths. You know, being a realtor is very simple. If we don't yield a result for our client, we don't make any money. We don't get paid. We can work uh, days, weeks, months on something, and if it falls through, we don't get paid. So I don't see where we're fueling anything except for giving clients good advice. And if you hire a professional to help you make money and they help you make money, I don't see where that's wrong. And I don't know the specific case of the couple in the article, and and we should clarify that nobody really does. There's not a ton of information about. Right. No, about it's a lot of half truths, right? But one thing is, so one thing that has come up is the disclosure of interest in trade. Um, would that document? So, as a realtor buying property, what is your obligation to disclose that you're a realtor and what your intentions are with the property? Yeah, well, there was one uh, court case that I'll refer to. Um, I won't use the realtor's name, but they bought a property. It was a, a dilapidated condo, and they did a reno on it, and their intent was to rent it, and then the market took a spike up. And then the uh, – so they decided to take it back to market, and they did, and they yielded a profit of – I forget what the exact numbers are, so I won't quote them – uh, and that person complained, and they filed a complaint, and they took that realtor to court. And then the realtor had to reimburse the commissions, and they had to forfeit the profit off the proceeds of sale. So in that particular instance, the disclosure of interest and in trade had been filled out for the purpose that they were going to rent the property, not to resell it, because that is an option on there. So as a licensee, if you are acquiring or your spouse is acquiring a 5% or greater interest in a property, you are to disclose the fact that you're a realtor. So because we're deemed to have extra expertise, that is the burden. Uh, and then we have to, only realtors have to just say what they're going to do with the property, what their future intent is. And as the example that I just cited, can have pretty dire consequences. So... I don't think enforcement's an issue. I think getting the initial complaint is the issue. You know, I spent six years on conduct conduct committee with the real estate board, and in my experience, people are always complaining that organized realtors not real estate is not doing enough. But at the same time, too, nobody wants to go through the complaint process because it takes up some of their time. So I'm not sure you can have it both ways. You know, we live in an area of North America that's probably the most difficult to obtain a real estate license. We also operate what is generally uh, perceived as the lowest commission structure in North America. You know, we are traditionally or typically pursue commissions that are 7% in the first 100000 two and a half in the balance. Put it in perspective on a million-dollar property, that represents 3% or 29500 In other places in Canada, commissions are 5 6 7%. Down in the States, they're 4 5 6 7% across the board as well. So... You know, only in Vancouver, I suppose. But 
So it draws a lot of attention to us, um, but in terms of enforcement and making it difficult, I would suggest this, that the majority of people doing this assigning and flipping are not realtors, and I would also suggest that a real estate license would get in the way. Right. So just to be clear, it's more difficult to do this when you have a real estate license. Yeah. I mean, the article also stated, I believe it was that article, I've read a couple that said that to avoid the FinTrack compliance that uh, realtors are listing the brokerages addresses uh, for the addresses of the client. And I just find that other horse crap. You know, I mean, FinTrack, uh, anybody that has endured a FinTrack audit knows it's not a very pleasant experience. And the penalties are so severe. I cannot think of one brokerage that I've ever been associated with that would even consider those actions. It's ridiculous. And the idea for putting the brokerage's address on the FinTrack, which we should actually explain what a FinTrack is, maybe, and 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 then explain what the goal of of having the brokerage's address would would be. Yeah, so FinTrack. Uh, FinTrack is for money laundering purposes, both from terrorist activities or from organized crime. And uh, it itself is, a, is another bee in the bonnet, if you will. But, you know, we are required to track the monies that we come in contact with and identify the clients that we're dealing with. If a client is, uh, comes from an at-risk uh, country or something that's uh, rated as a higher risk, then we are obligated to report it. So I would imagine that uh, the conversation surrounding putting in a more convenient address, such as the brokerage, is probably what that's about but again i just find it ludicrous not when we have the oversight that we do and the oversight is the federal government right okay so let's let's discuss a possible scenario where you know you're talking about trying to limit uh the ability of people to do assignments so let's well we'll have the real life example of what happened towards the end of the 2000s where banks decided they weren't funding on uh new sales and projects People were assigning contracts at a loss to get out from underneath them. But let's take it one step forward. I, as a private individual, sell you my home. I have made another purchase uh, based on receiving uh, the proceeds of that sale, right? So now you have a, a turn of events that says that you can't complete on the property. You either, somebody steals all your money, you lose your job, or you lose whatever. Sure. So now... Is it better to say that you can't assign that contract, put our contracts where it doesn't complete, and then puts me into a situation where I can't complete on another contract? Uh, or is it better to give you a relief valve and, then, and sell it to Matt? Even if you're taking a loss, Matt's going to pick up the contract because I still get to do what I want to do. And the person that I have to give my money to still can do what they want to do, and so on, and so on, and so on. So assignments basically act as uh, it provides flexibility in the, in it's the an, market, whether the market's going up or down. It's a useful. It's an instrument. Instrument, right? It's an instrument to convey uh, an asset, and an asset is a contract. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a legal binding document. The benefit of which is the ability to acquire a property under certain terms and conditions that are agreed to in what you would hope is an arm's length transaction. And I think the problem here is is not it's not uh, what can we do to to hamper realtors as we stated eleven uh, percent in that article were involved in the flipping of these properties so you're going to handicap the eleven percent that facilitate the deals why not educate people why not tell people to take their property to the market for proper exposure 
why not tell them that, you know, yes, you're going to save some commission, but you're going to lose five, six, seven times that amount by not going to market. I'm sorry, it doesn't make much sense. There's a saying, penny wise, pound foolish. You know, if you're so focused on pennies, you're going to lose sight of the dollars. So I don't, I don't, again, I don't think the engine's broken. I'm not saying it's perfect. No system's perfect. It's really, we have to leave the the engine alone, if you will, and we have to look at what's going into it and what's coming out of it. You know, you determine just how hot the market is by simply how much cash. If you can regulate the cash coming into the market, you're fine. And again, right now, the market is supporting this because there seems to be unlimited funds coming into the country. Right, and, uh, and the lack of supply. The lack the of supply. Yeah. The limited supply. So it's straight. I mean, look... History from the earliest day is about buying something and selling it for a profit. That's how everybody gets ahead. You know, real estate's been very good to me. You know, I um, it has allowed me to purchase my ex-wife a condo mortgage-free. It has allowed me to provide a home, and it's, my net worth has gone up uh, probably $500,000 in the last four months just based on the value of two homes. So I'm not seeing where that's a bad thing. I do do mourn for the opportunities for young people to buy properties. Mm -hmm. I think, but it's the obligation. I have three kids in university right now. Uh, I paid 192,000 for a house 22 years ago. That is now worth, well, 23 years ago. That's now probably worth a million dollars. So can we see that type of increase? You know, the market's a funny thing. My parents custom built a house in Coquitlam for 44,000. But that house now is probably worth 1.2, but they sold a 40 by 140 foot lot in East Vancouver to buy that property for $22,000. And that property is now probably flipped backwards and been double now what the house is probably worth in Coquitlam. Right. Because the house is at the end of its service life and it's a teardown. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the market takes on a life of its own uh, and it gives us different things. And, you know, the savvy investor or the, it's just like this. I've always likened uh, real estate to be like a slow moving stock market. So in the sense of that, um, you know, it's a commodity that's bought and sold. I find it ironic that in 2009, when we had the financial meltdown crisis, I attended my first investment seminar and by held by the TD bank. And what they did was they did a line graph showing the relative uh, value to zero of the increase and decrease in the values of stock. And then they overlaid another graph, uh, which indicated the peak buying cycles and the peak selling cycles. And I found it kind of ironic that most stock was purchased when it was at its highest value and most stock was sold when it's at its lowest value. So why don't we have that conversation? You know, how can you protect people from making stupid business decisions? So in this particular case, I think it really comes down to simply a matter of educating. And the only real way, if you're concerned about all this money being earned tax-free, there is no obligation for brokerages to report assignment lifts to RevCam. Right. So if just we've talked about... um doesn't sound like you think government intervention is necessary. It'll screw uh, it up. Yeah. It sounds like ins- it, that um, assignments are an instrument that are useful in, in all types of markets, whether it's a hot market or a market in which uh, properties are declining. Assignments are instrumental. In what circumstances, if any, is, is it unethical to be selling? Well, I, I think we're into that question now, ethics versus morals. And... You know, as an industry or as a profession, and we are self-regulating, 
um, we can enforce ethics. And ethics are basically rules. So if the rules are there and we're following the rules, we've done everything we can ethically. Morally, going in and convincing someone to sell their house when they could be realizing another $840,000 in profit, that's a moral decision. I'm not sure how we regulate that. You know, that is, um, that is between you and whatever belief system you decide to subscribe to. Right. You know, if people want to profit that way, and, and it's not just real estate, it's anything. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but it happens. And, but also in that situation, it's, it's also not clear whether or not they had an idea that the, the value of their house was less than it was, or if they were just were in a market that's rising very quickly. But that gets back to the key purpose of education. Get educated. You know, look, I have, uh, I have assets. Um, if I have an asset that's worth $5.2 million and I'm disposing of it, you better believe that I'm going to get educated about its true value. You know, I mean, realtors are not allowed to buy their own listings. They have to sever that. They have to ensure that the seller gets some representation, even if it's just to get independent legal advice and all these sort of things. So, you know, it doesn't come back to realtors. And we just simply, you cannot have a Real Estate Services Act or a real estate board that governs morals. You know, there is, it's, it's an instrument. How it's used is is up to the individual. So one thing that would just, you know, come to my mind is maybe if you are, if you don't know the market and if you don't understand what the value of the asset is, maybe get more than one opinion or get an appraisal or get an independent appraisal, right? Get an independent appraisal that has no stake in it. You know, you know, I kind of wandered a little bit before, but you know, uh, a week ago, a realtor said that, look, We've got a chance to take a listing, but we want, might want to buy it. How do we do that? Well, the advice was, you know what? Uh, make sure the seller gets independent legal advice. Um, you cannot list the property. You, you have to be arm's length as best as you can. And here was my suggestion. Both sides order an appraisal, and if they're only 5% apart, split the difference, and that's what the agreed-upon price is. Hmm. Appraisals don't take into account much of anything. You know, They assume that the house is in good shape. Um, you know, if the house has other deficiencies and that sort of gets negotiated after the fact, much like we do in a regular contract, typically with subject to inspections, it doesn't take into account uh, net dollars in terms of commissions paid or other costs incurred. It's just what they feel the market's worth, assuming there's nothing wrong with the property on the open market. And so the market decides what stuff is worth. You know, the definition of market value is an arm's length transaction between a willing and able buyer and a willing and able seller. And where neither side is under any duress or pressure. So it's not a divorce situation or somebody doesn't have to buy because they have to be out at a certain time and place and stuff. So, you know, and that was another thing since it's foremost in my thoughts right now is this. They're suggesting that it was the strategy of the people coming in to buy properties uh, to give long dates. But that was something that was mandated by the sellers because it gave them time to go find something. But it backfired. Right, right. Right? So, you know, it, it's... Both sides agreed to the terms of the contract. Well, one thing that I have found, you know, I've done a lot of dispute resolution in my career as a manager, and, and I've done a lot of, inve- you know, several investigations for the real estate board uh, on the conduct committee and stuff. And there's two sides to the story, and the truth is usually somewhere in between. And people are emotionally involved. They're emotionally engaged, you know, in the case of the Global Mail article, the one property that we keep referring to, yeah, I would be better too if I could have possibly realized another eight hundred and forty thousand dollars. 
So the, my bigger question is, is why did they not make a more concerted effort to educate themselves about a very large asset? Right. So education, hiring competent realtors, people that will have your best interests at heart. Those that could have avoided everything here. And instead, the very people that could have avoided that loss are the ones being slammed for it. And they represent such a small percentage of what's going on. It's again like with FinTrack. Lawyers and notaries don't need to FinTrack people. They're the ones that receive 95% of the sale proceeds. We only receive 5% of the sale proceeds because that's the typical deposit. And yet we're being the ones to ask. It's like putting a cup in a river and asking us to verify where all the water's coming from. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But we're pretty popular whipping boy. Okay, so one question about assignments. So actually, is the ability to reassign a contract a clause in the, the standard MLS contract of purchase and sale, or is that something that actually has to be inserted into the contract? The Every contract, if you're using the standard form provided uh, through web forms, which is by extension CREA and by extension BCRA, British Columbia Real Estate Association, are inherently assignable. It's clause 17. It's called plural. And then in that, it refers to that when you state a party, you include a bunch of definitions of that party and assigns as part of it. So could you take that out? I would suggest that had the anybody that had a contract assigned on them, would they have received the dollar that they received if that contract was not assignable? Are you hampering your your market value by giving you fewer options with that property. That's a question we don't have a definitive answer on. But the other thing is, you know, you could have the only rule for a real estate contract is that it be in writing, that it not be verbal. There is nothing stating that you have to use that form. So you could use a separate contract. You could use a piece of paper. But to be clear, if you remove that assignment clause, then you're removing the ability of the contract to be an asset itself. I'm not sure I totally agree with that in the sense of if you remove the assignment clause, then the contract is not assignable. It's not assignable. But Unless you have mutual consent. Right? I would say it's a commodity that has less value. Right. Because you could, if somebody, it, right? well, you'd still have to complete on it. And we had a, look, we had a situation in the office where a realtor, uh, won a property in multiples for her client. The clients were thrilled. They got a phone call the next day about somebody who didn't get the property offering them $100,000 more. So is that a nefarious thing? No. So they considered it. We had some conversations about how to assign it and some of the things, in, and then they decided not to because they had purchased the property for their son. Then they had second thoughts on it, but they weren't able to put together the assignment deal quick enough, so they let it go to completion. They still sold it. All they did was add the property transfer tax on top of it. That's all they did. Yeah. Right. And then the, they and still then, got their hundred grand. Yeah. And that's basically a standard real estate transaction, as everybody else understands it. Yeah. So, you know, I would maybe in a, maybe it's not a proper thing to say, but avoiding the extra payment of taxes probably reduces the cost of the assignment. I mean, if you take out assignments, people are still going to flip properties. You're going to have probably more in a less favorable market. You could end up with more foreclosures. You could have more people being sued because they weren't able to complete on deals because the person buying their house couldn't assign the contract. So, 
You know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Um, I don't think that, uh, I think it's just uh, the flavor of the day. Um, the market certainly is uh, supporting it right now. And the market, as long as we have this unfettered inflow of cash, uh, we're still going to have it. The other thing is, is, you know, it's only worth something if you sell it. So if I sell something today to realize my maximum profit, I have to move completely out of this market to really realize the true benefit of that. Right, because often it has to do with just the market coming up. So you're making a lateral move, essentially. And the market is coming up across the board. Well, you're working on a spread. You know, as I said in our sales meeting this morning, I had a client uh, that by the time they do buy something, you know, we started with their house being worth seven fifty and looking at a one point one sale. Now their house is probably worth about one point four, uh, and we're probably still dealing with that same spread. And the house they're looking for is worth one point seven. And then you know they're going to pay extra property taxes based on the difference in the price. So, you know, I mean, it's a matter of, you know, you can complain all you want about the market, but uh, really just get some, hold on to it. So get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. <laughs> well, that's probably a good place to end it. Uh, thanks very much, Mike Kofer. Okay. And uh, do, 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 <laughs> So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Mike Hofer, Managing Broker at Century 21 Intown Realty, about assignments. Yeah, Mike is an excellent guy, uh, fun to talk to. Just has that deep, deep well of knowledge based on uh, years of experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, he's been doing this over 30, 30 40 years. So, I mean, uh, he definitely, definitely knows the market, definitely knows what he's talking about. I think he said that he had been... Uh, he, he basically has overseen offices in everywhere except for, where was it? Tawasson, I think. Tawasson, yeah, which is... <laughs> He's which, been everywhere, man. <laughs> he definitely knows He definitely knows a lot about real estate in the Lower Mainland. Anyways, uh, one thing we wanted to say is, is thanks a lot for those who have uh, rated our podcast. Yeah, thank um, you very much. That's we great. read all the reviews and uh, we... We pat each other on the back, so... Exactly, yeah. It, well, depending on what they yeah, say. <laughs> Except for that three out of five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, and we also, uh, we love getting emails and questions for future podcasts, so feel free to, to get in touch. So, Matt, how can people reach you? Yeah, they can reach me at 778 778- Eight four seven two eight five four or at Matt M A T T at Scalina Real Estate dot com. Yeah, and you can try me at seven seven eight eight six six four five seven four or Adam at Scalina Real Estate dot com. And again, there is a nonpartisan line info at Scalina Real Estate dot com. Okay, well, have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next time. Absolutely, take care, guys. This has been the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast with Adam and Matt Scalina. Contact us anytime at 778-866-4574 or 778-847-2854 or online at www.scalinarealestate.com. Subscribe today. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? 
Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 